It's an exciting day. We're in week two of No Fear November. And one of the verses that we're kind of camping out in the series is uh, 1 John 4, verse 18. It says this. It'll be on the screens. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Uh, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out our fears. Uh, we revisited this last week, but fear is false events appearing uh, real. False events appearing real. And then the kind of the acronym that we're going to be kind of, kind of walking through this morning and even next week is this. Face your fears with faith. Examine your assumptions in light of the facts. Attack your anxieties with action. Release your cares to God. And so this morning, we're going to really focus in on the, the middle two, examine your assumptions in light of facts, and attack your anxieties with action. Uh, there was a movie that came out in 1975 that changed everyone's opinion about swimming in the ocean. You remember what movie it is? Jaws. Jaws. My dad took my mom to see it at the movie theater on their very first date. Uh, I'm 38 years old. We have lived in California since 1989. I have yet to see my mom go near the ocean <laughs> or swimming pools. Um, and I'm pretty sure it's, it's because of this movie right here. Uh, if you've seen the movie, you know that the scariest part isn't even the shark, right? It's the song, <laughs> right? Here, it's this. Terrifying. Oh. Oh. Who wants to go swimming at night in the ocean right now? The truth is, great white shark attacks rarely happen. On average, once per year in the United States. Uh, you are more likely, statistically, you are more likely to be a practicing nudist than be attacked by a shark. The odds are one out of every 6,000 that you are a practicing nudist and that you are a member of the American Association for Nude Recreation. The odds are one out of 230 that you are legally blind right now. And the odds are one out of 100. There's almost 300 people in here. So chances are three of you are drunk right now. We'll pray for you. <laughs> the things we fear when we examine our assumptions in light of facts, we most often discover that they have no power over us. Now let's get real. Let's get real. Another common fear, fear of rejection. How many of you, and this is a safe place, have ever uh, had a significant rejection in your life? Okay, I'm raising my hand as well. Okay, a significant rejection. You were rejected in a powerful way. It changed you and how you responded. It really affected you. Uh, how many of you have had that happen more than once? Okay. Three times. Five times. Uh, on average, most people will have those moments five to seven times in your life. An, a, a serious, intense rejection. Now, new question. How many of you have interacted with 10 people and they didn't reject you at all? Okay, just, I think everyone's hands here. You just interacted with them. Maybe they were at a shopping mall or a gas station or a teacher or a friend, a classmate. You've interacted with 10 people and they didn't reject you. Okay, great. Uh, 100 people, 
100 people throughout your lifetime. Yeah, okay. 1,000 people. I know 1,000 people that I've interacted with and they didn't reject. Maybe they don't care either way, but they didn't reject you. Yes, right? All of us have. So just based on statistics, the five people that we've experienced deep rejection from over here and the thousands of people we haven't experienced deep rejection from over here, we see that these rejections are actually extremely rare. You're not the weirdo. Those five people are. But we, let, we give those five people power in our lives and they affect us when in fact it's extremely rare. We fear it, but it rarely happens. Now let's get even more real here. Okay, are you ready? Check out this picture. What do you see? Who do you see? Do you see someone you're supposed to fear? Or do you see someone you're called to love? Do you see a Muslim? Do you see a terrorist? The perception is that most, that most of us have in America is that ISIS, this Islamic terrorist organization, has its primary focus on killing Americans and Europeans. Yet in the first half of 2017, only 1.7% 1 of the 1,700 people killed by ISIS were European or American. More than 95% of the victims were Muslims living in Islamic countries. Here's why this matters. Because fear so easily turns to hate. It's hard to love people when you hate them. It's hard to love them when you fear them. Looking at the facts can help us address our fear of these strangers. The Bible calls them neighbors. Um, do some Muslims commit grievous acts? Of course, as do some Christians. But with 1.5 billion Muslims in the world, it's worth asking how many people have been killed by Isla Islamic terror in the United States on U.S. soil since 9-11? It's a fair question. And the answer, according to Adam Hamilton in his book, Unafraid, is 94. 94. Since 9-11, there's been 10 terrorist attacks on U.S. soil that killed more than one or more people, including the Pulse nightclub back in June of 2016, which took the lives of 49 of the 94. These 94 deaths were tragic, horrible, horrendous losses. But the facts demonstrate that they are one category of tragic loss from many categories. By comparison, during those same 16 years that 94 people on U.S. soil died from Islamic terrorists, 9,600 people in the United States died by lightning strike. More than 160,000 died from murders unrelated to terrorism, and 560,000 died in car accidents. You are statistically 120 times more likely to be struck by lightning than to be killed by Islamic terror in the United, in the United States. You are 2,000 times more likely to be murdered by an American not associated with terror organizations than to be killed by Islamic terrorists. And you are 7,000 times more likely to die in a car accident. As Dr. Martin Luther King famously said, hate will never defeat hate. Only love is capable of doing that. The perfect love that casts out fear. 
And this is the love of neighbor and love of enemy that Jesus teaches us, that Jesus demands of us. Sadly, we can count on more acts of terrorism in the years ahead. And those who would use violence to further their own agenda, it's not going to stop. But our intelligence and law enforcement agencies need to continue to be vigilant to prevent such atrocities. And they need to discover new methods of fending off these attacks. And it is likely at some point in our future, we will fail to prevent another assault. But the greater failure would be the loss of our courage, our compassion, and our willingness to welcome the stranger in distress and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We lose that. We lose what Jesus models for us on the cross and with his life, his teachings, and his example. Social scientists have found that when people are anxious, they tend to seek out information from sources that actually reinforce their anxiety. We can see footage of the latest terrorist attack over and over again on 24-hour news, right? But we don't tend to look for sources that say that the chances of happening, that happening in our community is 3.6 billion. <laughs> we don't watch that network. Now, right now in our country, there is a divide. Here's a picture of our, the United States. <laughs> you guys ready to get political? This is about as political as I'm going to get. There is so much hate in our country right now, and that's because there is so much fear in our country right now. Conservatives hate liberals. Liberals hate conservatives. Conservatives fear liberals. Liberals fear conservatives. Conservatives watch the news networks that reinforce their own convictions, and liberals watch the news networks that reinforce their own convictions. And no one is actually listening to each other. It's fear, hate, reinforcement, repeat. Fear, hate, reinforcement. These are not the politics of Jesus. This conservative-liberal divide, each choose not to see what's best in the other. These categories, conservative and liberal, have been hijacked by the other side and painted in a way that stirs up a great fear for many of us. But it's not really what they mean. To be liberal in the best sense is to be open to new ideas, open to reform, respectful of individual rights, and generous. And to be conservative in the best sense means to hold to traditional values and ideas, exercising appropriate caution when faced with change. If we are liberal without a conserving impulse, we become unmoored, jettisoning important truths and values simply because they're old. I'm reminded of something a professor once said to me, all that is old may not be gold, but all that is new may not be true. If we are conservative without a liberal impulse, we become strict, unwilling to reform or embrace any kind of change. I find the ability to listen to people on both sides of the national political debates actually helps eliminate fear in my life. My wife does this better than me, as with many things. There are times when I'm criticizing or complaining that I'm, something that I'm watching on the news. And fear, anger, hatred begins to rise up in my own voice, frustrated because of what I'm seeing. And she points me to a greater love. She helps me see the other side. She points me to unity, conquering the fear that moves me to hatred. 
And the, fourth, the further we move to either side of this ideological divide, the more fear, worry, and anxiety seems to inform and control our assumptions. Fear gives way to paranoia and hate. Just turn on any news network. You'll see this. If in this political climate, you found yourself doubling down on one extreme or the other, how's that working out for you? Has it made you more loving, more Christ-centered, more peaceful, more joyful? Or has it made you more suspicious, fearful, less Christ-like, more anxiety? How we treat those with whom we disagree is both a test and a demonstration of our character and faith. How we treat those we disagree with is a test and a demonstration of our character and faith. Being right is not the defining mark of a Christian. Love is. Love. Jesus says, you'll know they're my disciples by how they vote. No. Jesus says, you'll know they're my disciples if they can win an argument. He says, you'll know that they are my disciples by their love. Thanksgiving is Thursday. Uh, and actually, Thanksgiving, giving thanks, is an, an amazing tool to combat fear and anxiety in our lives. You count your blessings. You thank God for your food before you, the hands that prepared it for life, for the people that whom you get to share a meal with. If you're married, giving thanks for your spouse every night before you go to bed and actually stopping to thank them throughout the day that you love and that you appreciate them, that they are in your life, actually will make your marriage better. The alternative, focusing on what frustrates you about your spouse and imagining how much happier you'd be if she was someone else or if he was someone else or if they would just change this part about him, that actually brings you further apart. Gratitude brings you closer. This is what Paul had in mind when he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in every situation because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Thanksgiving isn't just the last Thursday in November. It's a posture on our hearts that we give to God and to others every day. I love this verse because it succinctly offers a picture of the good life and how we obtain it. How can we rejoice always? Well, by praying continually. It's a constant conversation with the Lord as we go throughout our day. That's the good life. Robert Emmons, considered to be the leading scientific expert on gratitude. I didn't know that was a thing, but he's the foremost expert on Thanksgiving. And he says this, he's, he's devoted much of, his, much of his career to the connection between gratitude and happiness. His research found that regularly expressing gratitude makes people happier, more fulfilled, and more likely to flourish. It is a wonderful weapon to combat anxiety and fear in our lives. We must develop an attitude of gratitude. It's got to be more than the last Thursday in November. I read of an old man who sat in his rocking chair with his granddaughter outside a gas station, greeting tourists as they passed through their town. One day, a man who seemed to be looking for somewhere to live asked, hey, what sort of town is this? 
And the old man says, well, what sort of town do you come from? And he says, well, it was really bad. Everyone always criticized everyone else. I didn't like that place. And the old man said, that's just the way it is here. A few days later, another man walks by and says, what sort of town is this? And then the old man replies again with his granddaughter next to him, well, what sort of place do you come from? And he says, oh, it's great. Uh, it's great. Everyone gets along so well. And he says, well, that's just the way it is here. After the man left, the granddaughter asked, Grandpa, how come the first guy walked by, you said it was a bad place, and the second guy who came by, you said it was a good place to live? And Grandpa says, because wherever you go, you take your attitude with you. That's what makes it good or bad. That's so true. No one is better at feeling sorry for you than you. No one is better at feeling sorry for me than me. I'm so good at it. And in the middle of a conflict with my wife, and I'm complaining, and woe is me, this, I did this, I did this, and then this happened, this happened. And she'll go, um, is anybody else invited to your pity party, or is it just a party of one? And it's her, it's her way of saying, you're focusing on yourself. And actually, an attitude adjustment might be what the doctor ordered. You can harness the power of your imagination to conjure up a future in which you are alone and unloved. Or you can use that same power to imagine the truth of the scriptures that say that there is a God who knows you, who loves you, who is always on your side, that you are loved with a love that will not let you go. You could use your energies to imagine that instead. And what would it do to you? What would it do for your marriage? What would it do in your work? Worry is something that plagues us all. What do we do about it? Sometimes we've got to just take the focus off ourselves. My problems, my issues, my worries. Attack your anxieties with action. That's the A in our, in our acronym. First Peter says this in chapter 5. Familiar verse. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I just want to leave that up there for a sec. This is one sentence in, in the Greek. It's not two. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, comma, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What happens next was predicated on whether or not we humble ourselves or not. You can't do verse 7 without doing verse 6. Casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This has been so true in my life. I've been trying to cast my anxieties on the Lord and I want to keep my pride. But the thing we need to know is our pride and our anxiety come in the same package. So if you just insist on doing it our way, then expect to feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders because it is. You can't do verse 7 without verse 6. I'm casting my worries on you. I'm giving you my cares. Your word says, cast your cares on me. So I'm giving them to you, God. I'm casting all my problems. I'm casting all my failures. I'm casting all these. Take them away. But there's a connection, a link between our worries and fears being cast to Jesus and whether we have humility under the mighty hand of God. 
I want to invite knowing the band to come up. And I just want us to look at the word anxiety. It'll come up on the screens. There it is. Look at how it's spelled. Look what's in the middle. At the center of anxiety is I. At the center of our anxiety is our pride. The reason you might be so worried, the reason you might be so fearful is because you've got you at the center and you can't sustain it because it's not your throne. Listen to your prayers. Oh Lord, I don't know if I have what it takes. Oh Lord, I've messed up. Oh Lord, I want this. Help me do this for me. What more can I do? I've tried everything. I, 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 I. You can't spell anxiety without I. You know what else? You can't spell pride without I either. They're both right in the middle. It is not a command to cast your anxieties on him. It's a result. The command is to humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And the result is your anxiety goes with your pride. If we would get ourselves out of the center and humble ourselves and put Jesus on the throne, anxiety, fear, pride, narcissism, dread, selfishness, sin, they all fall by the wayside when we are Christ-centered, not I-centered. When we humbly declare, Jesus, I can't live without you. I can't breathe without you. I can't work without you. I can't pray without you. I can't parent without you. I can't forgive without you. I can't love without you. When we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, our anxieties go with our pride. They're connected. God, I pray in Jesus' name that we cast our cares on you by throwing away our pride, throwing away our worries and our anxieties on the mighty hand of God. We love you, God. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we worship?